Praise be to Allah, you tarnished Andrews. Um, so here's the crack with this week's fucking podcast. It's Tuesday, right? And I had a big fucking podcast planned. Not a big podcast, but I, I had a very, I had a boiling hot take planned for this week's podcast. And the shtick was is that I won't spoil it for you, but I was going to start off talking about a jacket. And this jacket, the hot take about this jacket, was eventually going to end up with me talking about a Nazi eugenics program. And I've all the research done. But here's the shtick. It's Tuesday. Earlier on today, I was invited out for a meat and cheese platter. In a restaurant in Limerick called Di Vincenzo's. A meat and cheese platter. Which I can't really say no to. You've got fucking salami. Fucking that uh, salami. That's my that's my extent of knowledge of cured Italian meats. But several Italian meats and several Italian cheeses. On a platter that you eat with some olive oil and bread. And a few glasses of wine. And this was at one o'clock in the day. So I was like, fuck it, I'll go for that. Sounds class. So I went out for it with a dear, dear friend of mine. Who's a woman. And before I knew it, the cheese platter was fucking lovely. The meat was lovely. I'd, I'd said one glass of wine. Before you knew it, it turned into two glasses of wine. Got out of hand at about three o'clock. And I was drinking pints. So I'm a small bit shit-faced at the moment. And I said on Twitter earlier, I said, I, I, I got poured a pint of Peroni, right? Now, I'm, Peroni isn't my usual tipple. Peroni is an Italian beer, but it's a very crisp, enlightening, refreshing beer. And when I asked the boys in the Italian place for the Peroni, they said, can you hold on a minute? Because we're changing the tap. we got to get a new barrel. So they changed it. Gave me the Peroni in a new fucking barrel. And it was as if God had wanked into my mouth. The Peroni was so fresh, so beautiful, so sparkling, iridescent, like the inside of a fucking pearl. Not the inside of a pearl, but like pearls come out of, um... Here's an interesting thing about pearls. Pearls come out of oysters, right? And the word iridescent refers to anything that has a a pearlescent quality. When you... Hold on, someone's coming into the room. I'm recording my podcast. I'm recording the podcast. So anyway, when you fucking... The thing with oysters, right? So oysters... In the inside of an oyster, if you were to look at an oyster... And the inside of its skin, or its face, or whatever you call it... It looks pearlescent, right? The, the skin of that oyster looks like a pearl... What happens is that when that oyster is in the bottom of the ocean, occasional oysters, not every oyster, and it's almost like how plaque forms on your teeth, a bit of dirt will go into that oyster and it will situate itself and it will it will ingrain itself in that oyster's skin. And then what happens is that the pearlescent quality on that oyster's skin grows around that bit of dirt over and over until you're left with a pearl. And that's what a pearl is. It's it's like um, 
It's like an oyster's gammy tooth. And we as human beings value this. Value this as, as something that you need to be worn around your fucking neck. What was I talking about? Long story short, alright. I went out for a cheese and meat platter with a good friend. And this beautiful pint of Peroni came in front of me. It was so gorgeous that I couldn't stop. Now I'm a small bit shit-faced. I'm a tiny bit drunk. I'm not even smoking my fucking vape. I, I, I went and bought fags. I bought actual cigarettes, which is something I don't usually do. Now, not only did I buy a fucking pack of cigarettes... I was preparing a meal the other day. It was a potato and aubergine curry. And two days ago, boys, two days ago, I caught the top of my finger while chopping an onion. And the cut was grand. I looked after it. It has reopened itself. So I'm sitting here today, still drinking a can of Rockshore Lager, which I bought. I bought Rockshore Lager from a place of anger. It's this new fucking lager that they're trying to, I think Guinness own it, and they're trying to position it as a craft lager. I went into Tesco and I saw eight of them and I said, I'm fucking buying you, you cunt. Because I was angry with it. Because I was like, I know you're pretending to be something you're not. It's just fucking Heineken and a widener. Or a boner. So I'm sitting here smutting a fag. My thumb is pumping blood. Because I've reopened a cut from a potato and aubergine curry that I had the other day. I'm drinking Rockshore Lager. And I'm in no position to be delivering ye the podcast that I intended to deliver. I intended to have a very boiling hot, cognizant take about a jacket which led to a Nazi eugenics program. And I won't do it justice this week if I speak about it while I'm kind of fucking pissed. You don't even get that lovely sound of my vape because I'm smoking a fucking cigarette like a fool. So what am I getting at? So also as well, right, while I was out having this meat and cheese platter with my dear friend, I asked her, I said, I was talking about one of the boys. And I said, do you fancy him, Right. And she said, do I fancy him? And I'm like, yeah, do you fancy him? And she goes, he's thick. And he thinks every woman is thicker than him. That's the most unattractive thing ever. I roared out laughing at this. I thought this was the funniest thing I've ever heard. It encapsulated male privilege in a nutshell. This lad that we know, God bless him. He's not the brightest of lads. I don't like even saying words like that, but he... He's not too smart, alright? But not only is he not too smart, he thinks that every woman is thick. And she pointed this out. So I wrote it up on Twitter. Put it out as a tweet. It was that funny, I tweeted it. And for some reason, a lot of boys underneath, they started tweeting, didn't happen. That wasn't real. That conversation never occurred. Because the idea for them of a woman evaluating their intelligence was so painful that their their unconscious pain 
sublimated itself to their conscious and it expressed it itse- it's expressed itself as them telling me that it didn't actually happen. That is so painful to me, I must have made it up. I'm sorry to tell you, boys. But, uh... Some girls are interested in intelligence. And my buddy was interested in intelligence. And it's a weird fucking thing that lads do. When lads on Twitter find a piece of information that they don't find uncomfortable, they tweet, didn't happen. That did not happen, you made it up. Which resulted in me having to tweet a photograph of the girl that I was with holding up a piece of paper on which was written I said it to prove to the boys yes it happened what I'm getting at I'm too mouldy to do a podcast I've had too many cans I've had a couple of wines I had an Aperol spritz which I never drink, but I had it for the first time, but I'm well into it now, and it would be a foolish move of me to be delivering ye this hot take about a jack a jacket and Nazi eugenics to be doing it the 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 service that it deserves while on several cans, so I'm not gonna do it. Instead what I'm gonna do Cause fucking leave me off. Do you know what I mean? Part of the, the crack of this podcast not being on fucking RTE or BBC. Imagine Ryan Tuberty turns up one morning and says, I'm not doing the show, I'm pissed. Do you know, like, Britain would reinvade. But because we have this beautiful podcast, and it's a socialistic model, you know, we've got a, the Patreon account. Subscribe to the Patreon if you wish. Blind boy. The, the patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast subscribe to that if you want because we have this model I feel it's okay for me to say this week lads I went out I got langers and I can't deliver the podcast and it's grand so instead what I'm gonna do is there someone at the fucking door some cunt outside on a, on a scooter Housemates after ordering a pizza. Anyway. Yeah, so this week you're not getting the full fucking podcast. So what I'm going to do instead is... And I promised I wouldn't do this. And there's going to be a part of myself that will be pissed off at myself in the morning. But it feels right. Like... I'm going to give you a live podcast instead. Even though I said that the live podcast has got a different mood to the podcast hug. And I will do it once a month. On this Wednesday. Allow me to get langers. On daytime drinking. And I'll give you a live podcast. Which is slightly different to your podcast hug. But this podcast as well. Inspired by. There's a slight anger in me. When I tweeted that thing. About my buddy. Talking about the lad. Saying that he's he's thick. And he thinks every woman is thicker than him. And that's the most unattractive thing ever. Because of those boys that were getting pissed off about that, I am going to put out my live podcast that I did with the author, Louise O'Neill, who is one of the most important voices in Irish society today. She's a feminist author. She writes fiction for young adults and for adults. And I recorded this podcast with her in Kilkenny about a month ago, two months ago. 
and it was a full packed out room four or five hundred people a lot of men left the room because the shit that she was talking about made them uncomfortable and all she was talking about was women's sexuality she was talking about sexual assault she was talking about masturbation and it caused men to leave the room so I'm going to play Louise's live podcast because I think you need to hear it and this is for the lads specifically and don't get pissed off at me in a week's time and say I didn't like that podcast I'm unsubscribing from your Patreon don't project misogyny on top of me or your uncomfortableness on top of me just listen to it listen to it and enjoy it because Louise is somebody who needs to be listened to I was going to put it out at the end of this month but what can I say Are a few too many cans let's see fucking a fly just landed on my hand that's the other thing as well what the fuck is going on this particular time of summer there's certain flies and they're just flying around the gaff as flies do but they just want to land on your knee or your hand and say what do you want with my knuckles sir do you know and it's just chilling out there and I'm not the type of person who'll kill a fly I'm not into it only the other night actually maybe they want the fucking blood on my thumb I love Spanish cuisine and I love Spain as you know because I fuck off to Cordoba once or twice a year but there's a type of food I'm after flicking I'm after flicking fucking fag on my crotch now and it's very unpleasant hold on on my Poma tracksuit pants there's a type of food that they have in Spain called tapas and tapas basically I think it's a type of culture that would be of great benefit to Ireland because what tapas does is that it stops you drinking It, it makes you eat a bit of food Instead of fucking going the whole way and having eight or nine pints. But how tapas came about as an invention. There's these cunts of flies in Spain. So if you've got a pint out or if you've got a bit of drink or a wine or whatever. These flies come straight over to your drink and are like. How are you getting on? Can I have some of that? And you as a human being is like. Get the fuck out of my glass sir. But the flies come over and I had it last week. I had a lovely piece of fucking drink flies came over to it and I'm like how can I stop them tapas was invented because and tapas is like small pieces of food it was invented because people were drinking drink flies were coming over so the barman started going come on we give you a biscuit and a bit of cheese and you can cover your drink with it so that's what they started doing in Spain the flies were so antisocial that an invention, a, f- a culinary invention, had to come about, whereby your drink is covered with a biscuit, and this evolved into an entire revolution of food known as tapas. So that's what this week's podcast is going to be about. It's going to be an interview with the author Louise O'Neill. I know the women who listen to this podcast are going to listen to it because women love Louise for good reason. But for the lads, just listen to this. Listen to this interview. Sit with the uncomfortableness. 
If you feel uncomfortable during this interview, like the lads who were there at the live podcast, something about that is confronting you with a darkness in you, a misogynistic darkness. Sit with it, fucking live with it, hear it, listen to it. Do you know what I'm saying? Challenge it, don't walk away, challenge it. Like last week's podcast was about fucking transactional analysis and I got several very pleasant uh, maids from all of ye talking about how it helped ye. Personal growth comes from sitting with shit that makes you uncomfortable. Not the, the pang inside of you to walk away from it. Fuck that. Sit with it. That thing that makes you feel uncomfortable. That thing that makes you feel emasculated sit with it live with it observe it like a fire and personal growth will come from that fucking listen use your ears do you get me as uncomfortable as it may be just live with it and from that you will grow as a human being alright I'm gonna do a very paltry ocarina pause before I go into the interview because we know, we know well, the fucking black and tans are going to try and advertise on the podcast. The fucking British army cunts are going to try and advertise on the podcast. So I'll give you a little, an early ocarina pause. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime, for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash blind boy. 
God fucking help anyone who is arriving at this podcast for the first time. I'm not even explaining the Ocarina pause for you cunts. Go back to the start, you goals. So I just pressed the record button, which means that the uh, live podcast has officially begun. (laughs) So I'm going to bring on my guest. She's a a fantastic author. Her name is Louise O'Neill, and she's from Cork. Louise! important thing is that he acknowledged I'm from Cork. That's all you need there to know. There you go. Yeah. Um, so throughout this, Louise, right, I have the questions to be asked on my phone. Okay. The reason I'm flagging this is that I've done a couple of podcasts where I've had a guest on and the questions are on my phone. It just looks like I'm looking at text <laughs> yeah. throughout the interview so like bored. a prick. Um, so what I did was, whenever I do a live podcast... I like to ask Twitter for the questions to kind of democratise it. It's a terrible idea. But anyway, what you do, you it's your podcast. um. It was great. There were some fantastic questions. And what I loved was, well, I didn't love it. The questions from women were brilliant. Yeah, of course. And then the questions from lads were just very passive aggressive and shitty. Why does she hate men? It's like, just Well, that was the higher end of the spectrum. (laughs) Like, the lads that were owning it and going, she's a feminazi. I was going, okay, you've outlined your position. Uh, Yeah. But it was the lads that were saying, ask her about the inside of a tennis ball. Do you know what I mean? At least own your misogyny, don't don't, you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You're not going to ask me about the inside of a tennis ball, are you? Because I have no idea. We might talk about the inside of a tennis ball. (laughs) That's a weird thing in Irish culture, the inside of tennis balls, though, isn't it? Do you remember in school the inside of a tennis ball punishment essay? That's no. a thing, isn't it? Did you not get no. that? No. If do you, does that resonate with you? If you were messing in class, if you were messing in class and a teacher wanted to give you punishment, like sometimes if you're a bad student, punishment is a good thing because it means, oh, I've got detention. I can actually get homework done. So a really nasty teacher would go, you've got detention for four hours. You must write about the inside of a tennis ball in 2,000 words. Yeah. Which I used to love. I'm like, yes, I will write about the inside of a tennis ball. (laughs) Absolutely. And I I remember I I had three separate write about the inside of a tennis ball essays. And one of them. I really want to read these now. I wish I still had them. One of them was about. um, It was an alternative uh, story about. Christ, anyway, found his way into the Ku Cullen story. (laughs) So what happened in this. I should have fucking kept it. I was only about 15. So basically, Cucullin is facing the dog, right? Okay. And instead of a slitter, it's a tennis ball. <laughs> so then, as Cucullin hits the tennis ball, as it goes towards the mouth of the dog, uh-huh. Christ, who'd been a teenager and messing around with time travel or whatever, <laughs> finds himself at that moment between Cucullin and the dog, so the tennis ball goes into Christ's mind. Ah, okay. And then the rest of the story was about... Christ's gospel being kind of destroyed because he had the brain of a tennis ball. <laughs> and for that, I was chastised by the system. Uh, yeah. As opposed to recognising that I had a bit of an imagination. <laughs> um, so you've written four books, you've written four novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
There's a few questions I want to ask first. Like, you're mainly seen, well, not mainly seen, but I, like, if I read about you, they sometimes describe you as a young adult author. Mm -hmm. Now, your most recent book is Not the Circus Breaks, Almost, Almost Love. Love. That's, That's for grown-ass yeah. adults. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. I think at the start, I didn't necessarily think I was writing um, a young adult novel. Yeah, um, that's what I want to know. Yeah, because it was, I suppose I just wanted to tell the story the way I felt that it needed to be told. Um, and then it was when I started going to agents and they said, oh, you know, we think this would do well in a young adult market. And I was like thinking of that John Green money. I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. That was my assumption. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all about the art. But like, yeah, you, you, didn't, you didn't sit down one day and gonna, I'm gonna, like, young adult is like uh, 12 to 18. Yeah, even though mine have always, you know, skewed um, older, but I remember when they first started submitting it to publishers, they kept saying they were like, oh, we, we think this is slightly too dark for this age market. I was like, have you ever met a teenager in your entire life? They're not dark enough, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but definitely, I suppose, with asking for it. Um, but with all of the books, there's always been sort of a crossover appeal, um, and they republish them as adult editions, because I think they could see that it would do well in both markets. So. And the protagonist in Asking For It, she's like 16, 17? She's 18, yeah. She's 18. Because you wrote it in the first person, right, do you feel that you spoke from the language and point of view of an 18 year old and because of that when a publisher read it they were like this sounds like a teenager i don't know i mean i suppose the i had a two book um a two book deal um when i sold um, uh, um only ever yours um and i suppose with asking for it i don't know i feel very in touch with that sort of part of myself anyway i think for most people like our school years were so difficult that they, they still remain like very fresh in our memories. And I also suppose it's a time of a lot of firsts. You know, it's like the first time you have sex, the first time you fall in love, the first time you have a heart, you're heartbroken. So all of that feels very immediate. So it's quite easy for me, I think, when I was starting to write, or maybe I'm just incredibly immature. I'm not sure. Is that <laughs> um, so it just felt really easy for me to sort of get that, um, that voice. And, you know, I had um, uh, my next door neighbor who was around 18 at the time, and I had her read it just to make sure that some of the language was okay. But I don't think the inherent experience of being a teenager that doesn't has, change yeah you know that's it, it, it that like, kind of remains the same yeah. um are you familiar with the book asking for it yeah. yeah um it is a book about a girl called emma who is like would you call her a nerd no, She's I think good they, at school, well, isn't I was going to say th that's the nicest thing. <laughs> usually people say, usually people say she's such a bitch, and then they're like, "Is she based on you?" And I'm like, uh, "I'm not sure what impression I'm giving here, but no, she's not." Um, I said she's sort of she's she is good at school, but she's you know she's the most popular um, girl in her class and is very obsessed with sort of her sense of self and her. Um, her beauty and the effect that she's having on men um, and I suppose that was a very deliberate choice that I made because I think that all too often we find as a society we find it really easy to have sympathy for victims of sexual violence if they behave in certain ways whereas if they don't you know if if they've been drinking or if they've taken drugs or if they've worked as a, a sex worker if they've been prom promiscuous and I think we all of those things tend to be obstacles in the way of seeing any justice because you know that that's going to be brought up in yeah. court if you do attempt um, to, you know, to take it that far. So I think I wanted to create a character that might be unlikable in ways to, I suppose, really just emphasize the point that, you know, it doesn't matter whether people are, like, if someone comes forward and they, they disclose being raped, it doesn't matter whether you like them or not, that they still deserve to be believed and to be listened to. Yeah, and like, if someone's house got robbed. Yeah, no, you wouldn't say, well, you're <laughs> dead, so you shit. deserve it, yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Um, but like, this book has become really incredibly relevant recently because of, we said, the Belfast trial. And that's what some of the questions on Twitter were about. 
Like, how do you feel about that? Because the book was brought up quite mm. a lot in the media yeah. when the Belfast trial was happening. I'm sure you got a quite a lot of phone I calls, did. did you? I did. I got a lot of messages um, and, uh, from friends and from people in the media. Um, and I was actually really... Sorry, just for people who don't know, oh, this, yeah. this girl, Emma, she is... She, um, yeah, she ends up, she goes to a party um, and she takes MDMA and she passes out. Um, and the next uh, morning she wakes up and she's been thrown on the front porch of her house and she has no recollection of how she got there. And it's only when pictures start to emerge on social media that she can put together that she was the victim of a, a brutal um, gang rape. Um, and then really, I suppose the book is more about um, how her community reacts to it, how her family reacts to it, how that's actually, for a lot of victims, much more traumatizing than the event itself, is actually the reaction of people and their reluctance to believe, especially if they know the person that you're accusing. Um, so it was when the um, Ulster uh, rugby rape trial um, occurred, from, from the very beginning, um, I was getting a lot of messages from people saying, you know, the similarities are um, uncanny. And I think I, I felt very reticent to sort of talk about that you know I never really yeah. replied to anyone on Twitter when they said that because I think I was always very wary of the idea of sort of nearly capitalizing um off yeah, the back of that like, you know I mean your character isn't real it's fictional but yeah. then you've got this thing going on with a real absolutely, person absolutely absolutely and you know people kept saying that they were like oh asking for it started a national conversation and I always said well I prefer to have those conversations off like the back of a piece of art um rather than you know, a young woman's lived experience. Um, but when the verdict came down, I was asked to write a piece uh, for the Irish Examiner. Um, and I did mention the book and that just because I felt like I had to. And it just, I, I felt really proud of that. I felt, because I had to write it. They, they rang me and they were like, we need this in two hours. And I was on the train and I had to write a 1500 word piece on the notes app of my phone. <laughs> that was just torturous. Um, and um, they, they published it the next day and the headline was, um, I believe her. Um, and I just felt like it was such a Did you choose that headline? No, they chose it. I didn't See, have that's a the fucking problem with journalism, yeah. man. But no, I, I was actually, I thought, you know what? Yes. Well, I mean, I'm afraid but now so getting mad, so much trouble, negativity. But when I, so much negativity that I've seen about you was because of that headline. Yeah. And not the content of the article, like. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the thing is, I suppose I always knew with the topics that I wanted to write about um, and the things that I wanted to say. I suppose when you're speaking truth to power, um, there's always going to be people who don't want to hear that. I remember um, before asking for it came out, my father was the first person to read it. And I was a little bit wary because you know, he's lived in Clonakilty his whole life. You know, yeah. our, he's real sort of small town, he played football. Um, and I was a bit concerned and he, he sort of sat me down and he said, you know, this is going to be a really important book. Um, and he said, I hope you're prepared. And I said, prepared for what? And he said, there's going to be people reading this book. Some people will realize that they've been raped. Some people will realize that they've raped oh, someone. Fuck. And he said, and those people will not want to have that realization and you're the messenger. Um, and he said, you know, he just said, I just want you to be prepared. Um, and I kind of, I, there's nothing that can prepare you from, for that. There's nothing that can prepare you for people hating you um, just because you've tried to argue that maybe equality is a good idea. Yeah. Um, but you know, you just have, to, I just try and switch off and not, you know, I don't read, you know, I don't search for my name on Twitter. I don't look at boards.ie. I don't, you know, do all of that kind of thing. Oh, you should go to boards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would never sleep ever again. I would be like, oh my God. That's a fucking sewer. <laughs> but uh, Jesus, that's really profound what he said because I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of, um, in particular, that people who, that reading their book would actually go, oh shit, that thing that happened 20 years ago, yeah. fuck, there's a name for that. Yeah. And I had written that off from my own mental health. Yeah. Or even, I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, he is very profound. It's like living with Buddha. Sometimes he'll go, and it's a lot of sports analogies. And he's like, no, on the field. I'm like, I don't fucking care about what happens on the field. <laughs> but, anyway. but um, yeah, it's something I spoke about on one of my podcasts recently about um, we'll say the reaction around the Belfast trial and, and so many young lads that were angry about it, you know. Mm. And what I felt was is that on top of we we'll say a misogyny, it's like they have very clearly defined definitions of what rape is. Mm. And for a lot of lads, rape is a physically violent act that happens down an alleyway from creeps. Yeah. And those same lads are actually quite like, let's beat them up with sticks. Yeah. But when it happens in a bedroom at a party, or it happens in a situation where it's blurred, yeah. they're not willing to take that on board as rape because no, it's too close to home. I agree. And I think, I remember reading a study, I think it was the University of Dakota, and they did this study where they asked um, like a whole series of college men, you know, if you know, if you could have, if you could force a woman to have sex with you, um, and no one would find out about it, and there would be no consequences. I think something like thirty-five percent of them said yes. And then, as soon as you said, "But would you rape a woman?" They were all like, "Oh no, no, no!" Like it's like they couldn't sort yeah. of correlate. It's like, hmm, okay. Um, but um, and I think that is the problem. And I suppose as well, you know, when I was growing up, it was you know, a stranger danger in an alleyway you know, a, a man with a knife that was yeah. going to sort of drag you in, whereas actually most um, people will know the person who's um, raping them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I remember having, it's funny, I remember with the Ulster Rugby Rape Child, the, the text messages that have been going um, between the victim and her friend previously, they've been talking about what they would do if they got raped. And I remember a lot of the media was like, oh my God, I can't believe that it's like she knew. And I said, women are always having these kinds of conversations. I remember having this conversation with a friend when I was 15 saying, what would you do if you were raped? And we said, if it was someone that we knew locally. And we both said, actually, we probably wouldn't say anything because it would too be too awkward living in a small town and you know, you'd be going out and you'd see them and you'd be going to the same parties and forever you would be the girl who got raped. Um, and so I think it's, it's particularly hard in, in I suppose, small communities or in places like Ireland when a lot of the time you'll, you won't just know the victim but you also might know the perpetrator and you're like, oh, they seem like a really nice guy. It's really hard for me to believe that they could do it. Um, but what the definition is, because that person doesn't look like he yeah. has a knife down an alleyway with a big yeah. trench coat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about know? trying to... And also, the thing is, I have, like, I have male cousins who are you know, 18 and 19 um, and I worry about them as well because I mean I've been advocating you know sex proper sex education um, and you know programs around consent and there's so much resistance to that even at um, like college like at a third level um, and I'm like that, it's too late yeah but it's it's too late at third level like they should yeah. be doing this when because I think we're failing not just our young women but actually our young men as well because I would hate to see someone like one of my cousins get into a situation where he didn't understand what consent looked like. Um, and yeah. then did something that he would he will regret for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important. That's why I think education is... I mean, the sex education system in this, in this country is dismal. I mean, we had someone come in to us um, and who gave us... Uh, they did like, it was like a travelling drama group. And they is did this like when this, you were getting sex Oh, this, was, okay. this yeah. was when I was... I, mean, I was thinking, like, last week? No. What are you up to? <laughs> it's been a hard year, okay. Um, I, um, yeah, so it was when I was in um, Leaving Search, so, like, not that long ago. And we, there was, like, this travelling group, and they did this little play about the, about basically, like, chastity and staying virgins until we were, you were married. And, like, legitimately, for about 90% of that year, it was like, that ship has sailed, my friend. Um, but, uh, but, like, it was just, that was the only sex education that we had in six years of school. I mean, that's just insane. We had a priest that told us 
didn't say anything about sex. Was yeah, it the tennis first balls? Was a fucking priest. Was he talking about tennis balls? What? Was he talking about tennis balls? Tennis it balls wasn't tennis balls. balls. <laughs> All he, he, he couldn't, he was probably supposed to talk about actual sex between humans, right? <laughs> but he couldn't even bring himself to do that. So the gist of it was, do, do never wank. Yeah. And if you have a wet dream, it means that you dreamt about having sex with the devil. Oh, that's, that's, that's really extreme. It's very extreme, yeah. yeah. Well, I and that was least, Limerick in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, at least he was acknowledging that he masturbated. I mean, for girls that was like, oh, no, 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 none of us do that. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm the only one. This is really scary. So. Is that the same? No, because I find now, and this is one thing I've noticed recently, I find with adults, we say, not necessarily teenagers, I think female masturbation is something that's kind of celebrated. Yeah. And then male masturbation is, is keep that to yourself, lads. Yeah. <laughs> but like there is a kind of a celebration around uh, I know now sex toys have been liberated recently and they're no longer looking exactly like a penis, which is a good thing, you know yeah. what I mean? But like, if a woman gets a sex toy, yeah. like there's sex toy parties and stuff, it's something to be celebrated. Yeah. If a lad decides he wants a fleshlight. <laughs> no, but come on, like. You are not going to your buddies and saying, I got a fleshlight, lads, who wants to go? Can you imagine lads having a, part a fleshlight party? But like, it's not something to look at, you know? To be fair, I suppose it's because women have been stigmatized for their sexuality for so long that we're trying to, I suppose, push through those boundaries so that when a woman talks about sex and about sex toys, it feels subversive in a way. There's a liberation a, there, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas when a man does it, it does feel a bit... Actually, it's funny because I was on um, a website recently that was selling um, <laughs> sex toys. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yes, yay me. Um, and um, there was this this toy called... It was it was so revolting. It was like a, a, a woman's torso. Um, and, I mean, it was really... Uh, it was just so... Anyway, it was just... It was just a torso. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it was just the language that they used around it. It was like, you know, oh, you know, that you can just fuck her and then put her away. And I mean, some of it, it was like, okay, right, is this so what men want? Did <laughs> you contrast that? And then put us into the cupboard. What, what's the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking, I'm just asking. What then is the language around female sex toys? Well, it's not, I mean, this was really hardcore and it was just, it just, it was really degrading. Um, and it, like the language was like, it was just really explicit. So you um, felt that the target audience for this, it wasn't necessarily a man who wanted a masturbatory tool. It was no, someone who no, wanted... No, 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 Yeah, it's kind of the idea of like, I could imagine like, you know, like incels, you know, like these involuntary yeah. celibate, um, sort of this subgroup of men's rights activists. Anyway, I'm less said about them, the better, and, um, on, on the internet. Um, and you could just imagine, it's just, there's something really perverse about it. It was like yeah. that sex, like, you know, this idea of sex robots, um, and they, uh, they, robotics, I don't know, Institute of America did this study and they said like 30% of the men that they um, uh, polled said that they would use a sex ro robot and 30% of the women said that they were really like against this. So, um, but I think it's, there was one, did you hear about that? It was like that Samantha, the sex toy at that, um, that fair in Austria. And apparently she got Is it robotic? Or yeah, it was like an actual yeah, yeah. woman, like a, a sex robot, and they destroyed her. Like, as in, like, she malfunctioned by the end of the day. <laughs> like, it's and so do you mean up. 
through overuse or uh, through oh yeah just as in like they were like and the guy who created her was really upset about it uh, <laughs> like, how dare they treat her like this and you're like I mean, uh, yeah but she was like she just started basically just like malfunctioning because they were like I'd say basically climbing on top of her is what um, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. The, descri- the description came out of it and I think there's a real like obviously that's a very extreme um, example but I think it's sort of indicative of a certain um, faction of men um, hashtag not all men um, before <laughs> any of you start tweeting me um, and that kind of I don't know and I think that was actually and I'm relating that back to the Ulster rugby rape trial because whatever, yeah. what, whatever you think happened on that night I think the whatsapp messages just really highlighted a very sinister attitude towards women it's like they didn't see her as a human being like you mm-hmm. know the city of oh we stuffed her and we roasted her and, and I, it's nearly like they saw her as like a sex doll um, and I yeah. think that's why I think some of these it's just trying to tie all of these pieces together and just to see that they're not all happening in isolation that they're all linked um, and I think creating an environment where male sexuality is encouraged to be incredibly aggressive yeah absolutely aggressive and you didn't hear the podcast I did about that about toxic masculinity did I you? Did, yeah. yeah so like I was just trying to retrace my steps yeah. in terms of what was I taught about sex? Like, first off, like I said, sex education failed me. Mm. Don't wank, you're sleeping with the devil. <laughs> so, like, all I had was the lads in school. Mm. And it was basically just, what did you get off her? Yeah. And then also, the, the, the big pervasive thing is, I, I, Jesus Christ, I, like, I, I must have been 19, 20 before the conversation moved into women actually enjoy sex. Mm. When you're a teenager, a boy, girls, we think girls don't enjoy sex. It's a thing they have, and you, they reluctantly must give it to you, mm. and you have to trick it out of them. Yeah. And that was the normal attitude. Yeah. But I know? think, actually, I think young women are taught that as well. You know, I remember when I was having sex, and be like, I mean, I never do this. It's you. You're so special. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was like that kind of idea of, like, oh, okay, you've persuaded me. Okay, okay. Um, and I actually think that's really dangerous, because, like, you should never have to be persuaded or persuade, persuade someone to have sex. And I think it's actually about teaching young women that not only is it okay for them to say no, but actually it's okay for them to say yes as well and to say, this is what I want, this is what I enjoy, and not to... I suppose that I feel like sex sometimes when you're that age can be, for a woman, can be very performative, that it doesn't matter about your pleasure, that it's really focusing on, you know, how they're perceiving you and how attractive you're looking. And, and also even just... And it should be the other way around because it's really easy to make a lad come. Yeah. <laughs> know what I mean? Well, yes, and that, and to be fair, that's, um, that's part of the problem, that's part of the, well, not part of the problem, but I suppose it's, (laughs) I have a good point, I promise, it's just, I think it's the idea that I suppose that the male orgasm is, like, expected, and it's like, well, he's definitely going to come, and, like, you know, the female orgasm, you're like, well, look, it's nice if it happens, but, like, we don't have all day here. (laughs) Like, that's, I think, should totally be dismantled um, and broken down, but, you know, it's really important that both parties enjoy it. I suppose it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If someone walked in there, it sounded like you were talking about politics. Yeah. Um, Right, let's go through these hot, hot questions. Um, it, has be, it has to be so draining writing. How does Louise manage her self-care at different stages in the writing process? Um, the writing itself is okay. I tend to be really disciplined when I'm doing it, um, and that helps. Like I, 
you know, I'll go, I, I, while, while I'm writing, I'll do like a morning yoga class four times a week and I'll go to the gym like four or five times a week and I'll, you know, I won't drink and I go to bed really, or like I live quite a monastic lifestyle. So, so that's all lifestyle. part of your process. Yes. You understand, yeah. if you look after you, yeah. then your brain yeah. will give you what you need and later I, on. And I need the, mo- the, the I, I need to have very little going on in my life actually to be quite mm-hmm. boring so that the, mo- the main focus is the story that I'm creating and the world that I'm inhabiting while I'm doing it. Um, publicity actually I find, because um, I've been, I've had two books back to back so I've been doing sort of two publicity tours um, and I actually find that way more draining um, yeah. because you kind of have to, like this is, you know, you sort of have to perform um, in a way, and then and I think a lot of that is, you know, people asking questions, um, and you know, sometimes, re- and I've always been really open about, you know, my own experiences of sexual violence or my um, history of eating disorders because I thought it was really important to destigmatize some of those issues because I don't think I need to be ashamed of them. Yeah. But also, when you're being asked about it over and over and over again, and often, you know, sometimes they would ask like really really personal questions that w- felt very invasive and you'd sort of walk away feeling very hollow um, yeah. and when you're someone who tends to fill a feeling of hollowness with addictive behavior it's something i have to be really really careful of because um, yeah. after the asking for it uh, I, uh, when that was released i did i did really struggle so this year i've been trying to be much more i think mindful of just taking care of myself um, and prioritizing my recovery above everything else and like when you spoke about there, okay, your own experiences would say of we say sexual assault, right? When you were writing, asking for it, was there a cathartic element of writing it, or was there a sense of it being upsetting? Um, it was upsetting. I mean, I think it was such an intense. I, when I write, I tend to sort. It's nearly like method acting. Like I'm really, really absorbed in it. On the um, body. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I just because it's just easier that way. I feel like once I'm in a flow, it just comes. Whereas yeah, if yeah. I took a few days off and then went back to it, I would find it hard to kind of get back into yeah. the character's voice again. Um, but I that was definitely the most difficult book I've ever written um, because I was I was just. I, before I started, first of all, I had to sit down, I had to sit my parents down and my sister and say, you know, this happened to me when I was a teenager because I knew that would probably come up in interviews and I had never told them. Um, and they were really upset about that, obviously. So mm-hmm. even from the very beginning. And then midway through, I started having nightmares um, pretty much every night about being raped. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really intense. By the time I finished, I, it took me ages to, get, to start writing again because I really thought, oh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to write something ever again because it was that intense, um, but the other two have been a little bit easier anyway, so. Did you get tempted afterwards to go, I'm gonna write something mad that has nothing to do with my own life at all? Well, I on mean, Mars. yeah, I mean, to be fair, I suppose, like, not, none of the books are about me, do you know, I yeah. it, it's using certain things, and I suppose because a lot of the things that I have experienced are, there are universal issues that affect a lot of women, I did feel like it was important maybe to use my voice or use my platform to, shine a spotlight on those um, and to explore those um, further, you know, particularly uh, obviously in fiction, even though I do it in my column as well. Um, but yeah, I think that was why with Almost Love, because everyone kept saying to me, oh, what issue is the next book going to be about? And I just, I'm a bit contrary and I yeah. kind of wanted to, I think, just not feed into other people's expectations of me. So I, you know, wrote a book about like a toxic love affair because I felt like if I wrote that, then I would have freedom going forward, like creative freedom to write yeah. whatever I wanted, so that I wouldn't feel pigeonholed into this sort of role as as activist, even though that's really important course, to me. Yeah. But I didn't want to sort of like that to be the only aspect of myself. And with, with Almost Love, no, I haven't read Almost Love, but I've heard buddies talking about it. And um, like, from what I hear, the protagonist is really not likable. Yeah, I get, yeah. And is that people, a conscious choice? 
I mean, it, it's, it's interesting Someone when... described it to me as a very intelligent Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I Do mean, you hate that? Unfortunately. Well, I'd love it if it sold the same amount of copies as Fifty Shades of Grey did. But, um, uh, yeah, What's no, the gist of that book, just for the, the people listening? Yeah, no, sorry. Um, Almost Love is about a young woman called Sarah who becomes embroiled in a really toxic love affair with a, a man 20 years her senior called Matthew. Um, and I suppose it's really about obsession and desire and gender politics and um, female sexuality. Um, and it, it felt, it was funny, it didn't feel like quite zeitgeisty when I was reading or when I was writing it, but I think actually in the wake of the Me Too movement where we're expanding now not just to look at sexual violence and sexual assault, but also just to look at, I suppose, sexual politics um, yeah. between men and women as a whole. Um, and that's what the book deals with. But it's been interesting with Sarah because a lot of people have come back and said, oh, I really hated her. And then a lot of people have told me like in private or in private um, <laughs> DMs on Instagram going, oh my god, I am Sarah, that's exactly, and I'm like, I think it's Do interesting. Do you think it's possible that, that people hate her because they remind them of parts of no, themselves that they don't want to I, take ownership of? I know, I agree, and I also think that when you're writing a book from one person's perspective, we all have cruel thoughts, we all have petty thoughts, we all think, you know, maybe unkind things, but most of us don't act on them because we're yeah. good people, but I said you can, it, it will be, like, I think dishonest of me not to reflect that um, in the book and I also think I really wanted to play with gendered ideas of how we think women should behave and how we think women should act because I've, I'm a bit of a people pleaser and I think that has really been a burden on me actually is that need to be liked and that need to be you know nice and likable and I think that it's really important for young women to going up say that there's all different types you know you can be you can be an asshole, you can be lovely, you can be whatever you want, really. Um, and I think the thing is, is that the male anti-hero is so well established in pop culture. Yeah. I just wonder yeah. if something like Breaking Bad had been written about, like, you know, if that was a female protagonist, I just don't know if it would have been acceptable in well, the same way. Well, I mean, way. look at how people felt about Skylar in Breaking Bad, you know? Yes, yes, this, she this got more This is a woman, like, her fucking husband's off dealing meth and being a total prick. Yeah. And she's the bitch? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But again, it's, we have so much higher standards. We, which I actually think is really, and it's funny when you know people say, "Oh, you you hate men," and I'm like, I really don't. I actually think I just expect more from men than maybe what society does. Because I think at the moment we have really high standards for women, and we sort of expect women to be perfect and to be the the, the sort of upholders of this moral standard. And then we dismiss men with this sort of boys will be boys, and I'm like, I don't believe that. I think that men are just as capable. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. Um, I recommended to lads on my podcast to, to basically, actually, I'll take it on to a question that someone gave me because it relates to this point. Um, does it bother Louise when men report that my podcast has opened their eyes, taught them about some aspect of male privilege and sexism, when women have been talking about it for forever? <laughs> Or does she feel that it no. doesn't matter how they learn so long as they learn? Um, I, I actually think, to be honest, someone said this to me um, recently, they, and it was about you actually, they were like, I feel like you and Blind Boy are saying the exact same things, but you know, he's been sort of hailed as this hero, whereas you're this anarchist, radical feminist who just wants to like burn all the men in a bonfire and be like, women only. Um, and I mean, that sounds great, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, so, no, I think, and it was funny because I suppose I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it, but I think there's a, there's a good point there. Um, yeah. And I do think, firstly, I think it's really important that you are talking about the things that you are talking, because you will reach 
um, you'll reach people that I can't. And I suppose yeah. the thing is, is that I think that we do need men to be our allies in this. We need, because you know, in let's say all male spaces, in like the kind of proverbial locker rooms, that we actually need men to step up and say, that's not cool, that's not acceptable, you can't talk about that, and to remove the social currency from that sort of laddish um, uh, banter, I suppose, in a way. Um, but I sort of, yeah. But what I do is, what I find in that situation too, when, when I am calling out my friends, if, if I hear them speak about a girl, we say, and if they're completely removing her personages, make, making her an object, uh, I kind of, I appeal to their selfishness. I say to them, if you speak about that woman in that way, that aggressive way, that's going to come, that level of uh, hatred that you're expressing, you're not going to escape that later on in the week. Mm. That toxic talk will result in a toxicity towards yourself, yeah. and it won't help you with the depression or anxiety you're going through at the moment. Mm. What you're saying about that girl, I know you think it's banter, but it's far from compassionate. Mm. And unless you express compassion for someone else or yourself, you're not getting rid of that yeah. issue inside yourself, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I do find that gets true, yeah, because it's less finger-wagging. Yeah. You know, it's like here is how this affects you too. Yeah. And then I find that lads actually listen. No, I think that's great. I mean, sometimes it can feel frustrating when you know, when even when you're talking about feminism, you have to say, "Oh, it'll benefit you as well." Yeah. Like, as if it's not just good enough that it'll sort of empower women, or you know, that we need to, I suppose, bring women up. It's not about dragging men down, it's about lifting women up so that we're all equal. And I can understand that, I suppose, that if you have had the power and if you've had the control and the status quo has, I suppose, benefited you in a way, that it can feel slightly frightening when that begins to shift and you, you might think, oh, that I'm, I'm going to lose something of mine. And it's, we're not trying to take anything from you, it's just that we believe that we should have you know, equal rights and opportunity and that's all that feminism is about. And sometimes it can be really frustrating to feel like you make up 51% of the population and that you're treated like a minority. Um, and I think that that's something that needs to shift as well. How do you feel about uh, performative feminist lads? Mm. Like lads wearing a repeal jumper and going into a nightclub to expect a shift. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Go to a hipster bar. Yeah. There's a lad in the corner with that jumper. Um. That's a thing. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's it's there. It's definitely there. Um, I'm sorry. Do you think we should stop stop patting lads on the back no, for doing I, look, shit they should be doing anyway? No, and I, I absolutely I I agree. Um, and I think that is what you know. Even what we were just saying there is that like you and I will say the same things. And because you're a man, and because you're talking about issues that predominantly affect women, it's sort of like well, we should give you a medal. Yeah. Whereas um, that is if because I'm talking about these issues that it's as if I'm trying to sort of push my own agenda um, rather than saying no this is actually about benefiting um, society as a whole um, and just about fairness I think even you know since I was a child I've always been like this isn't fair this isn't fair my parents are like well life isn't fair and I'm like well fuck that I you know I think that we should change <laughs> um, and um, it's you know and I just think sometimes it can it can feel as if men are like all things being equal because i know sometimes when you talk about the idea of i suppose male privilege um and then you will have you know someone who, who let's say is from working class will look you know look at me who's middle class and say well you have more privilege than i do and i think the thing is that all things being equal like you know uh, class and sexuality and race all of those things being equal men are rewarded more and they're also excused for more um, and i think that that again needs to be tackled um, and it's funny I suppose this whole idea around you know that you hate men and I'm like well no I really don't um, but I do hate the system that benefits men 
at the cost of women and at the cost of you know people of color and you know things like that and I think that the only way that we're going to move forward as a society to be a more fair a more compassionate society is to dismantle I suppose the patriarchy so let's burn that shit down and how significant um, in terms of what you're talking there and the progress right mm -hmm. like how significant do you think repealing the eight was to what do you think like obviously there's the evidence-based now women are going to have access to, to healthcare mm -hmm. but we said the cultural a cultural shift like is that going to make a difference do you think I mean I, I have to say it was funny because I was canvassing um, and the results that we saw um, last Friday were actually like that was bearing out on the doors you know like for every kind of five yeses there would be one no but I, I for some reason I still thought it was going to be really tight yeah me too um, and I, yeah. yeah I couldn't believe it when the results came in and I suppose as well what I found really frustrating throughout the entire um, campaign was that I kept getting asked yeah, but like, what are people going to vote down the country? Do you know, yeah. as if we were too busy digging our potatoes to worry. Well, you, you were a, a representative know? for the boggers. Yeah, it's like, oh well, hopefully Dublin will save us. Um, and, um, so I think it was really wonderful to see that bearing out. You know, that it wasn't there wasn't that rural um, urban divide that you know even with men and women. But also, I thought what was most heartening was to see that the number one reason that people gave for voting um, to repeal was a woman's right to choose. I really thought it was going to be, I thought it would be the hard cases that would get us over the line. I thought it would be rape. I thought it would be, be um, fatal fetal abnormality. I thought it would be incest. So that I thought was just, I'm still actually trying to, to process that. Um, and it has made me, I suppose, because I've always felt really proud of being from Ireland and being Irish. But you know, there, like I, I did an event in New York a couple of years ago and midway through the woman said, well, you know, Louise does come from a country where they don't have legal abortion. There was like this audible gasp in the room and it kept coming up to me afterwards and they were like, it must be very hard, the priests control everything, do they? And you're like, yeah, and like, oh, do you have electricity? How are <laughs> So I think this reflects, I suppose, more the Ireland that I hoped that I lived in um, and I think that that's really wonderful but like we still have I mean we still have work to do like you know yeah. women in Northern Ireland don't have access and also I think you know with the people that were on the anti-choice um, side you know obviously I didn't I didn't agree with them I didn't agree with some of their tactics but they've all started volunteering for uh, organizations that have children I was now, just yeah. gonna say yeah and I'm like yeah. you know the, you could not I suppose dispute the energy and the enthusiasm and now it's like well you know, it's time to redirect that. Mm -hmm. You know, for rape crisis centres, for domestic violence centres, um, for children who are living in disadvantaged areas, for Chiline, for Bernardos, um, you know, for the women and children who are actually alive today rather than the, you know, children that might have existed um, in the future. And I think that is something that I would really love to see um, that their energies be redirected um, in that kind of manner. And it'd be class, but my worry is they're just going to follow the American model where they protest places where abortions yeah, are happening, you know? I know, it's terrifying. Um, here's a question, right? I'm, only, I'm saying this one now because it's, it's quite hilarious, the person, how they said it. Uh, oh, God. How, how has living at home been for yourself, your self-image as a young, <laughs> successful female author? Then one hour later, she responds to her own tweet. <laughs> oh, goodness, I'm so scared you'll see this and think I meant it in a mean way. I really didn't. Oh, <laughs> Um, I'm guessing she probably lives at home herself. Yeah, probably. Um, it's funny because I obviously I like when I when I went to university I just could not wait to leave Clonakilty um, and I you know I went to Dublin and then I went to New York and every summer you know I would have went, I went to South and Central America I went to India I went I did a J1 so I never kind of went home 
Um, and then I think when I came home from New York, um, I was working for a fashion magazine over there. And when I came home, um, I decided that I would move back in with my parents, basically because I didn't have any money and I wanted to take the year out to write. And then when I sold the book, um, which was for pittance, so I couldn't afford to move out anyway. And then I did, I moved back up to Dublin and actually, I just started to feel really overwhelmed. You know, yeah. the success of asking for it took me by complete surprise. I was, you know, going on television. I was um, doing a lot of photo shoots, and I started because obviously having had anorexia, I started to get very conscious of like the way my body looked, and I stopped eating. Yeah. Um, and I started losing quite a lot of weight. Um, and I, I remember going home, and it was my dad again was like, "We're really worried about you," you know. Um, and I think there was a part of me that felt I just needed to go home. I needed to get back into f focusing on recovery, getting back into like proper therapy, really putting that to the forefront. And I needed the support. I just needed them just, just to be, just to mind me a bit actually. Yeah. Um, and now I just don't want to leave um, because <laughs> I basically forgotten how to change my own bed sheets. Like that's the level of laziness that I'm at now. Um, but I, you know, it's like, cause I, I recently, I was, um, I was hoping to uh, buy a house and it fell through. Um, and they were both so funny. They were both really chuffed about it. I was like, I'm, like distraught and they're like yeah but we get to keep you for another while <laughs> i'm clearly a dream to live with is all i'm going to take away from this um but no i think for me it was the support um and it was i suppose as well the way that i write is quite obsessive so i need someone to say like have you had a shower that kind of you know like isn't Fuck that sort of thing? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very obsessive it's just me and the desk and i don't think about anything else and i can't like i'm a terrible like i left a friend's wedding early because i thought of a plot point and i was like oh no this will work and i have to go like it's terrible I'm a, i know i know i know you're all like oh my god i'm a terrible person do you think um, that's because of the nature you're writing is so first person Yes, I think when I'm in it, it's really hard to think about anything else. Yeah. Like I'm just so consumed by it. So it, it was, as well as that, just it, it may, it's a bit like when you're doing your leaving search and you c can't think about anything else and your parents yeah. sort of mind you a bit. That's what it's like when I'm writing. So, And I, when I was traveling a lot as well, so I think it was nice just to come home and just have normality and not have to, you know... Do you find people, I don't know, make shitty remarks about it, like... About living at home. Well, it's, I'm trying to decipher the Irish attitude towards I, living at home with your parents. I think I it's think become normalised now a bit because of... Like in Dublin, a lot of people live with their fucking parents because they want to try and buy a house. Yeah. Down the country, you can't live at home because there's no jobs, so you have to fuck off to Dublin. Yeah. Do you know? So yeah. like... I don't think... I've never gotten... I suppose the thing is, is that... I could have, you know, it's it's not like it's it's a choice for me, you know, that I could afford to move out if I wanted to, but at the moment it's just I needed that extra bit of um, support, I needed that extra bit of stability, and now obviously moving forward that'll change. Um, so I I don't I never felt it, and also to be honest, I think I decided when I moved home from New York because I had been so caught up up until that point about the impression that I was giving other people. You know, that I was doing this job that I didn't really like, but I was really concerned with, oh, this will look really cool and people will yeah, be yeah, really yeah. impressed by this. So I think I came home and I was a bit like, I'm going to live my life on my own terms. I'm not going to have a timetable of, I'm gonna get married at this point, or I'm gonna buy a house at this point. I was like, I'm just going to live life the way it kind of comes at me um, and do it on my terms. Um, and so if people did think, oh, that's pathetic, she should move out, I'd, I wouldn't actually care. Because it, it works for me, and well, that's all that matters. Like, well, it's so fucking damaging that business you're talking about there about um, living your life by someone else's expectation. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, fuck me, that that's really. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That that's a recipe for mental health problems right there. You know, mm -hmm. it is like it's it's. I spoke about it on a podcast. It's Carol Rogers, psychologist, calls it the real and the ideal self. If you live your life in this ideal self, this sense of 
how would other people like me to be? Yeah. There's no way to reconcile a kind of a self-compassion, but if you live as you yourself would like to see yourself mm -hmm. and fuck anyone else, yeah. chances are you'll be on a, a general yeah. level of happiness. Yeah. You mentioned therapy there. Are you actively seeing a therapist? Yes. Or? Oh, yes. I have, um, I have an online um, coach, and I also have someone that I see um, on a weekly basis. And what's um, the nature of that? Is, it, is, there a, is there a specific type, or do you just speak? I, well, usually because my life is quite dramatic, um, I, I just speak and by the end of it she looks like as if she's just been watching a soap opera for an hour. <laughs> I, think she, I honestly think she kind of looks forward to me coming in. She's like, what is she going to say this time? Um, but um, I, I, it's, it's such a luxury. Um, and I think, you know, I've been asked in certain, um, from certain people would say, well, will you have to do that forever? And I always say, well, you know, I like to keep fit and I don't think that if I keep fit for four months, that I'm going to be fit for the rest of my life. Yeah, like, of course. Yeah, I know yeah, that yeah. I'm going to have to keep going into the gym, and I think that is with um, your mental well-being as well Absolutely. that you need to you need to prioritize that. And I suppose for me, like, like I've been this this past year that I've really like thrown everything into my recovery. I've never been this well, and it actually makes me really frustrated because I I had the money to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what annoys me is that this idea that mental health and well-being um, and emotional stability nearly is actually only the preserve of people who can afford it because therapy is a luxury that not everyone can afford or you know and i think that yeah. if, if we all went to therapy we'd all be like and donald trump if, needs if like you're on a fucking, therapy if you're on a medical card and you go to your doctor with depression they just fuck a lot of pills in yeah. here you know and there's no yeah. and I mean, there's, a, there's, there's, there's definitely like a role for um you know, pharmaceutical um, intervention as well. Um, but I think that it's, we just don't talk in this country. Um, and I think that was why we've always had such a history of alcoholism is that people had all of these feelings and they didn't know how to express them and they just wanted to stuff them down. And I know myself that like with my own eating disorder, it was a way of numbing out. It was a way of whenever I felt upset or stressed or even happy actually, I didn't want an extreme of either emotion. I just wanted to feel completely numb. And I think that's what all addictions are based on an inability to say, this is how I feel, this is what I need. Um, and I think it, we should be talking about this from a much younger age as well. You know, like Completely, giving yeah. children that vocabulary, being like, it's okay to express your emotions. To even know what the fucking emotions are. Yeah. Do you know? I mean, yeah, when, I, when I was it. at the throes of my anxiety, like I would not have been able to correctly identify, was I angry, was I sad, was I afraid? Yeah. It was all this, um, like a burning fire of unpleasantness. Yeah. But there was no actual ability to go, I am angry right now. I know. Or my sadness would communicate itself as fear. Yeah. And once I got a hold on being able to identify the separate emotions, then I could take ownership of them yeah. and get, get recovered myself, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But we're not talking about that. You don't, like, um, I always say it starts at, like, when someone's about three or four years of age and they go to play school or whatever, and they see their, their friend in play school has got a new Tonka truck or whatever and they're, they, they're jealous, mm. but the jealousy expresses itself as, I'm gonna go over and kick that Tonka truck. That's what happens. Yeah. But at that moment, an intervention should occur where the child is told, I know you feel angry, I know you've expressed anger, but that's not actually anger, that's jealousy, and yeah. that has to do with your self-esteem. Yeah. You thought this person was better than you because of something they owned, and then your brain said, I am angry, I can hit them. But that goes back into, oh, I can hit myself later on then. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's, that, that's poor emotional intelligence. Yeah. And that needs to be done at three years of age because that's when that shit starts. We know that yeah. from development and psychology. Like. Yeah. And I think um, if you actually feel them, they dissipate much quicker. It's when yeah. you try and suppress it and suppress when you try and not feel it, it's yeah. like it builds up and then it just like explodes in like a really inappropriate way. I think especially with, with anger, it's because a lot of women 
have been taught that you know that we we can't be angry um and I, I, and i suppose the flip side of that is that many men have been told that the only feeling that they're allowed to have is anger yeah. and it's like anger isn't actually a bad thing in and of itself it's the appropriate um i suppose expression of that yeah and, and that both extreme. of us are kind of finding that quite difficult um, yeah. to do to articulate it even so I hope, I hope you're having a good comedy festival. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is my fault. <laughs> um, we're an hour into it, so usually what I do around now is I, I, I've put a roving mic around the room if anyone wants a fucking question. Who's got a boiling hot question? About anything now. It can be about, we have a lady over here. She went like this. I haven't seen that since I was seven. <laughs> Holy fuck. context of the repeal movement even in the last week we've seen the narrative has been rewritten um, to the degree that it's become sort of beginning to edge towards isn't it great that the men brought us this far there's been three <laughs> articles today that the NWCI weren't mentioned in yeah. ARC weren't mentioned in you know and I just wonder how we can go about changing that narrative because that's going to be our history yeah you know it's, you know, it's really frustrating and I, um, I totally see where you're coming from because, you know, the repeal movement was a feminist-led um, grassroots movement um, and I think it, it has been frustrating to see, I suppose, how the traditional media have tried to spin that. Um, and I've tried, I think it was on Marion uh, Finucane's show last week that someone was asked, you know, who did he think were the main, I suppose, uh, drivers of the repeal movement and he named, like, four men. Um, and I'm like, come on now, like, at least throw Alva Smith in there, like, yeah. throw us a bone. Um, and it, it is really frustrating. I think the, the problem here is that a lot of the times when you talk about history um, or when you talk about the narrative, that has been traditionally dictated to us um, by, like, white straight men. Um, and I think sometimes I know, you know, I've noticed even as an author um, when... I mean, I've been pretty lucky because I've been reviewed very widely, but I know that friends of mine would say that it's much harder for them to have their books um, reviewed or taken seriously than, let's say, their male peers. Um, and in a way, I think that we're, we keep fighting to get keys to the castle, and I just don't know if we need to ignore that and just build our own, because I'm not sure if they're ever going to let us in. Um, I don't mean that in a... I don't, I honest, I don't mean that in a... In a like, I suppose really negative um, way, but I just think it's about us, us actually saying, no, we will take control of this narrative. We will write um, the um, oral histories of this. We will, we will, I suppose, stake our claim in this movement because we were there and we know what won this um, uh, referendum and who the people involved were. Um, and I suppose that is why I think that there needs to be, you know, when we're talking about um, like the media or when we're talking about even like boardroom tables or in um, in the Houses of Parliament. That's why we need like representation. That's why we need equal representation. That's why we need women in there as well to have a voice um, and to ensure that that voice, because we, we already have voices, but it's in to ensure that those are being heard. Um, so I think that's maybe what we have to do moving forward. Why do you think it's happened though? Like why, 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 why would they bother saying, they're writing out the, like I saw an article there, I can't remember where it was, but, uh, Linda from Abortion Rights Campaign oh, yeah. did massive, massive work. She's amazing. She shared it going, like, they're completely writing out what we did. Mm. Like, what's the incentive? Like, why are they doing it? It's, it's baffling. Like. I suppose the glory. I don't, is it glory, but I, is it, I mean, is it fair, straight up agenda or is it complete and utter ignorance? 
I mean, it's really hard for me to answer that um, because obviously I, you know, I can't speak um, for those people. I mean, it does feel like I suppose, particularly in politics, you know, I suppose I can see the politicians about, going. Yeah, let's make can, it about us. Yeah, and yeah. in a way, I can understand that because it's like that's how they will get reelected. You know, as if they claim some of this glory. And to be fair, like uh, Leah Bragger and Simon Harris both did. You know, they did step they up. They did at the last minute, but I mean, yeah. the thing is, and this is my thing with uh, Harris and Bradiker, it's like. That's what you should have been doing, lads. Yeah. Do you know, we have to be very careful yeah. about patting them on the back. It's no, like, I agree. And you're a minister for fucking health. Like. I know, I know. And, and I suppose... Like, what, what you want, you know what I mean? I said, well, my fucking bin man comes over. Like, you know, I'm not going to pat him on the back for collecting my bins. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, um, I, it was interesting. I'm not sure if any of you saw Claire Daly's um, yeah. speech. Mm. It was just so powerful. And she was so, yeah. yeah, and she was so right, though. It's like, that, you know, as politicians, they haven't been leading. They've barely been following. Um, and I just thought that was such a salient point. Um, and I think, but politics in this country tends to be quite conservative. Um, you know, it's it change. Like, I mean, Savita, like the Savita case, that was 2012. And like, we didn't get a referendum for like another six years. Like, it yeah. does feel like everything moves at sort of a glacial pace. And I think it's just a fear of of upsetting people and of alienating um, uh, voters. And th that's the problem, is that you know we've got this political system where people are elected because they'll fix, I don't know, the holes in your road or you know, th that, kind of, um, that kind of attitude rather than, well, what are they going to do on a grander scale? What are they going to do to move Ireland forward? What are they going to do to make sure that this is, as we've said, like a more compassionate country that's fair to all of its citizens, men and women, you know, whatever um, social class that they're, they're in, that we all have, e like that was in the constitution, equal rights and opportunities for all Irish men and women. And it would be nice to see, I suppose, a political party working towards that aim rather than a kind of a cronyism um, trying to please, you know, the constituents back home. Do you think that lies on the constituents to not be voting in Egypt? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but it's tough when they're going to fix the bottle, like, yeah. you know. <laughs> to be fair, it but is. seriously, I mean, like, I mean, we've got fucking... fix the bottles. Willie O'Dea down in Limerick, you know, yeah. and he, like, he like, he's, was a, a pro-anti-choice, a pro, um, he actually does good things for the community in Limerick and when the people of Limerick feel completely ignored and the Healy Rays in fucking Kerry and who's that lunatic from Tipperary? Matthew McGrath. Matthew McGrath. Matthew McGrath. Matthew McGrath. But, but no, the, the, the worse than that, the fella who sold a lot of mobile phones to Dennis O'Brien oh, or something. Larry. Who is he? Lowry. 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 Like people vote for fucking Lowry because they're obviously yeah. doing something to the parish pump, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that obviously is the problem at the top. It's like mm. stop ignoring these small communities and we'll stop voting in lunatics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people care about their doorstep, you know. Yeah. They do. Uh, any other questions? This this lady here. Where's the microphone? Um, I'm going to go back to Almost Love, and you said that a lot of women identified as Sarah. I'm one of them. Yes. Did you have okay, any <laughs> any men identify as Matthew? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, 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 no. Um, is, is he the older, toxic yes, man? Yes, he's the older guy, yeah. Um, he's basically... I always find it really amusing, because he, he uses Sarah for sex, and he's really emotionally abusive to her. And no one has ever said to me, oh, my God, Matthew's such a dick. It's always like, Sarah's not very nice, is she? <laughs> Because okay. we expect it out of Matthew, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, he's a guy, so it's fine. Um, but, um, yeah, no, it's funny. A, a lot of people have said that to me, that they're like, I really identified um, as Sarah. But no one, no one has said that they I, I mean, it would be kind of weird if they're like, oh, that yeah. That'd be very I'm, odd. Yeah, I mean, I'd like it. Do you know, know that abusive man? Yeah. That's me. <laughs> and I just want to... 
Thanks very much for highlighting that. <laughs> to be fair, my, my go-to line now is when someone says, they're like, oh, you know, are you Sarah? Which, I mean, the conflation of, like, female artists and the, the um, uh, characters that they create is just hilarious. Um, and I always just say, no, no, I'm actually a Matthew. And then you can just see there go. <laughs> just a string of, you know, men brokenhearted, but it's fine. Um, so, so, yes, I think it's, um, yeah, it can be. I, I found with Sarah that I really... I really like it when people say that they identified with her because I wanted to create a character that I felt was the most raw and the most honest character that I've ever created because I actually don't think we see enough of that um, with female characters. That, and I was, I was told that. They were like, you're going to need to temper this. She's going to need to be slightly more likeable. And I was like, I Fuck still... Em. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I was like, I think I, I, all I care about is whether people will read it and say she feels real. I don't really care if they say whether she's likeable or not because I hope that the story is compelling enough to sort of bring the reader along with it. And it has been slightly annoying the way I think that narrative has taken over because there's so many things in the book about, you know, um, grief. It's a study in grief. It's a study in creativity and art and who gets to make art and who gets to call themselves art and how gender and privilege intersect with that. Um, and obviously it is about, I suppose, obsessive love and how women are conditioned to silence themselves in relationships. Um, and it's just a con it, it just felt a little bit frustrating to see a lot of the reviewers focus on uh, the unlike, you know, it's like, oh, she's really unlikable. And I felt like saying, well, you know, you've both totally missed the point while simultaneously proving my point. Um, so, so thanks for that. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's been interesting to see, I suppose, that that's sort of taken precedence over everything else I'm talking about in it. So, a bit annoying, but you can't control it. Um, I can take one more question because they're going to boot us out of here so a, a comedian come on and tell a lot of jokes. <laughs> There's one lone hand over there. The lights are very strong in Kilkenny. I know. <laughs> that sounds like a Nathan Carter song. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I can imagine him releasing that. Yeah. The lights are very strong in, in Kilkenny. <laughs> I have, hello, everyone. Uh, this is a question for Louise. Um, seeing as you live at home at the moment, uh, do you have any kind of therapeutic rituals that you can perform only at home or near your homestead? And if so, how important are they to you in your day-to-day -day life? That's a good question. Um, and it's funny, when I'm on tour, I have slightly struggled. Um, you know, I've tried to sort of treat it as a marathon and, you know, gone to the gym and, you know, did, um, I've, I've done things like that. But when I'm at home, like, I go to the beach a lot. And I meditate. Um, I'll do, you know, I, I have yoga and things like that. And I, I, it's much easier for me when I'm at home to... I thrive on routine, um, and I think that's part of having had um, an addiction and also anxiety and things like that, that it actually alleviates a lot of that if I have a very healthy um, routine. Um, and I suppose it can be harder when I'm traveling or when I'm on tour or doing publicity to sort of maintain that routine. Um, so I'm just really looking forward to now once this is over and once the play has, um, not this particular podcast. Once this podcast <laughs> is over, I'll be done. Um, but once uh, the uh, stage adaptation of Asking For It is premiering in Cork in June, um, so once that's over, I think I'll be able to just return to that like level of self-care that I that I enjoy at home. Should I fuck off the Lanzarote or something? No. <laughs> no. I, I hate the sun. I'm so pale that I like everyone's been delighted the last few days because it's sunny and I'm like cowering inside, being like, oh god, it's awful. So yeah, I'm too pale. I'm too pale for the sun. Louise O'Neill, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. So, 
very much. Uh, this has been the Blind Boy Podcast. And apologies for like the probably maybe six people here who came here for a horse outside. <laughs> Sorry about that. But um, thanks very much. You've been very sound. And I hope you have a lovely, lovely weekend. And have a bit of crack and look after yourselves, will you? So there you go. A lot of Marxism from a pair of cocks. Alright? So, I'll see you next week where I'm going to deliver you a proper podcast about a jacket and Nazi eugenics. God bless. Look after yourself. Look after your neighbours. Have some compassion for your neighbours. Most importantly, have some compassion for yourself. Yort. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 